war, specifically first half of the 20th century American naval warfare. Why should people care? What is there to learn from the U.S. Navy uh, over that time period? What is the tension between art and science in war? And how did the Navy professionalize itself to become, you know, the most powerful Navy that the world has ever seen by the end of World War II? To discuss, I have here with me Trent Hone, the author of two excellent books on 20th century American naval history, Learning War on How the Navy Learned to Fight, and Mastering the Art of Command, How Admiral Nimitz Brought the Best Out of the Organization. Thanks to the Andrew Marshall Foundation and Hudson Institute for sponsoring this episode. Trent, welcome to China Talk. No, thank you. It's very nice to be here. And thank you for the kind words about my books. I really appreciate that. So why is the 20th century U.S. Navy worth studying? Oh, I think there is a lot of reasons. Uh, but one of them is that we can see a lot of valuable sort of intellectual ferment uh, around, you know, what does it mean? You know, naval officers are trying to figure out, you know, what does it mean to be a modern Navy? What does it mean to be a modern naval officer? And as they wrestle with those questions, they align it very much toward, you know, answers that we probably would expect. Oh, the ability to further the, the nation's strategic goals uh, by winning naval uh, combat, but also doing that, um, furthering the nation's goals in peacetime as well as, as, well as wartime. And they work out different methods for doing that. And they also work out how best to take advantage of the rapidly changing state of technology, which is something that we see in the 20th century, right? You go very quickly from you know, submarines being introduced to them becoming a weapon of war in the First World War, airplanes being introduced, same thing happens uh, along the same pace. Radio becomes a sophisticated instrument. Radar uh, is introduced. And so there are all these dynamic changes that are happening uh, prompted by technological change that the navies of the world have to deal with. And the U.S. Navy was particularly good at identifying these changes, uh, keeping abreast of them, and le leveraging them in a way that uh, allowed the United States Navy to not just become the most powerful, uh, as you remarked, but uh, also one of the most effective uh, in the world. It, it, it's sort of like ship for ship and, and talent for talent. Yeah, I think that was sort of the two axes which really struck me in reading your and other books about this history of first, just like how different a world it was in the Navy, you know, pre um, uh, pre 20th century. I mean, you have these like very deep traditions, which we're going to get into. And then, you know, in a blink of an eye, it's kind of modern and you have all these <laughs> electronics and you have things flying around and you have missiles and torpedoes and 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 all of a sudden, and it's kind of recognizable to a, you know, late 20th and, or 21st century mindset. And also like the, the, the fun part, I think, which you get it, you do a really good job of emphasizing is just how unclear it was to everyone at the time, like what the hell they were going to do with all this new capability and all this sort of new technological change. And it's, you know, fun. I think, you know, as we're sitting here in 2024, staring down, drone warfare and AI and, and, you know, a space force and all these new cyber stuff in the face to, to, to recall that, you know, it wasn't that long ago where you had great, you know, great power war at a time of incredibly, um, you know, blinding technological change. And uh, so I, for one, agree with you, Trent, that I think there's a lot to be sort of mined in the depths, particularly when you're talking about the U.S. Navy. And, you know, while they certainly don't have a perfect record over the course of 
uh, over the course of the, you know, the 20s and 30s and, and through World War II, they ended up doing something right. Um, so, or did they? Uh, maybe one more big prompt before we kind of get into this. Uh, Admiral Yamamoto, of course, the, the, the most famous Japanese uh, naval officer who, uh, you know, has a fascinating personal history. He spent a lot of the 20s and 30s in the U.S., and he was actually a big member of the sort of peace tribe. He was advocating very much against starting war with the U.S., partially because he um, spent a lot of time in America and said at one point that, quote, anyone who has seen the auto factories in Detroit and the oil fields in Texas knows that Japan lacks the national power for a naval race with America. So, um, you know, we're going to have a conversation over the next hour and a half about all of the, you know, cute stuff that the Navy was going on. But at the end of the day, Trent, like, isn't just the way that these things work out kind of downstream of national GDP and productive capacity um, is is was Yamamoto right? And, you know, this was all kind of set from the beginning. Or is there enough kind of contingency when you look at these types of conflicts that uh, the way that the um, the armed forces execute the kind of like, you know, base national power cards that they're dealt is something that really is worth um, uh, um, spending a lot of time thinking about. I believe that there is a great deal of contingency, and I think it's important to think about that. Uh, and I think we can use uh, the quote that you just shared from Admiral Yamamoto as a, as a vehicle into that, because he's talking about this industrial capacity that the United States has, the natural, natural resources that the United States has access to. But he's saying naval race. We can't get in a naval race with the United States. And yet he's perfectly willing to seek war with the United States and to initiate it with the raid at Pearl Harbor. You know, he and his staff are architects of, of, of that plan. So no matter what he would have thought about sort of a long-term race with the United States, he does think that there is a possibility to win a war with the United States, in part because he's thinking about that from uh, the realm of, of contingency. And, and a war with the United States isn't necessarily, at least in the Japanese mindset, and I think we, we should not embrace necessarily the Japanese mindset, but I think we need to understand it in order to think about what happened in the Pacific War and what possible outcomes were. And the Japanese are thinking, you know, the outcome here is not going to be decided by, you know, material. Uh, they had been restricted by uh, treaty from building a navy that was comparable in size to that of the United States or to Great Britain for that matter. Um, and so their navy is very focused on, you know, making sure that each ship or each platform is technolo as technologically sophisticated as possible and, and also uh, as capable uh, as possible. And they think that the outcome of the war is going to hinge less upon you know, the number of ships or you know, the logistical support that they can be provided and instead on the moral fortitude of the opposing nations and whether or not the American people are going to fight a war for Asia or for you know, the dominance that the United States has had up to that point in Asia. And the Japanese are willing to bet that the American people won't. And, and they fight the war. You can see their pattern of approach to the conflict is very much informed by that. From the raid on Pearl Harbor, which is intended to be an initial shock to shatter the morale of the United States Navy and the American people. Obviously, it doesn't work. Uh, but later on in the war, when they're thinking about uh, suicidal attacks or other things that are designed to tax the patients of the American people for a long war. And so the challenge that the U.S. Navy faces, that uh, the U.S. High Command faces, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and their planners and the like is, how do we make this war shorter so that we can bring all this material that we are producing to bear 
but do it in a time frame that the American people are willing to support. So, you know, let's take a step back. Um, Spanish-American War, 1898, not like that long ago in the grand scheme of things, but the Navy, I mean, it was, seems like this big joke. Um, Trent, like how did the Navy, how did, you know, Navy work at the end of the 19th century? Well, the, the U S Navy doesn't work terribly well at the end of the 19th century. There are a lot of difficulties. Uh, Spanish American war brings some of those to the fore. One of them is that the Navy can't coherently plan for war. It's got competing factions within the Navy department that are trying to figure out, you know, what is, what is war planning? How should war be executed? Uh, the Naval War College officers there are producing a plan that the Office of Naval Intelligence has a concept for how to fight a war with Spain. And then, you know, fleet commanders uh, also have their concept and they, they are competing factions. And the challenge with this, of course, is that the United States relies on uh, civilian direction of the armed forces. So it falls to um, Secretary of the Navy, John Davis Long at that time to try to figure out, wait a minute, <laughs> We've got to execute war with Spain. Uh, it's got to be. An, it's got to have naval components. What, what are we going? What are we going to do? Uh, and he sees it as real difficult to to try to reconcile these different competing factions within the navy, within his department that he oversees. And uh, so, but he has to work that out, and and he does. One of the things that he does is he forms a, an advisory board. He gets some naval officers uh, who are senior enough. That, that he trusts, uh, he places value in their experience, and uh, they advise him on the conduct of the war. And he thinks this works pretty well. Now, some of the officers that he works with have been agitating because there's been uh, a lot of visibility into the success that uh, Prussia has had fighting uh, against other German states and, and fighting against France. And so, oh, military people around the world see the Prussian general staff system as, ah, this is the answer. This is how we fight modern war. This is this is how we organize effectively. U.S. naval officers are immune from this. So they're advocating for something like general staff um, and trying to figure out how to reconcile it with the principle of civilian control. And Long has a neat idea and says, okay, I've got this advisory body that worked during the Spanish-American War. Let me formulate uh, or you know, let me adopt a similar pattern in peacetime I'll form something called the general board. It will be advisory, so it won't have control. It will work through the secretary of the Navy. Uh, we will maintain civilian control, but it'll allow more comprehensive planning for the future within the Navy department. Uh, works kind of well. But other things that the U.S. Navy does in the Spanish-American War, for example, how well it can fight and shoot, uh, not adequate enough in the assessment of many officers. Adequate enough to win battles against the Spanish Navy which is older, um, less disciplined, not as well organized, so not seen as on par with the other European nations. But the, uh, the U.S. Navy naval officers think, well, gee, if we have to fight Germany, which was considered a potential threat at the time, uh, we may not win. So we better do things better uh, and, and, and getting better at, at, at shooting and getting better at coordinating uh, tactics at sea are, are things that they start to think about how to work on. Uh, talk a little bit about how you got promoted in the Navy. Oh, this is great. This is great. So at that point, you get promoted in the Navy just based on how long you've been there. You get promoted more or less in line. So, you know, if, if, if you've been there, you know, 10 years and somebody ahead of you has been there 12 years, they're, they're going to move up in the ranks ahead of you. 
uh, until you, you know, you get to the point where you're, you want to retire. Uh, now there are exceptions to this. There, there was an ability to get promoted a little bit faster if you performed well in some kind of exceptional circumstances, like the Spanish American wars is one reason why some officers are very excited about the opportunity to prove themselves and to thereby gain some ability to advance more, more, more quickly, but more or less it's you're promoted in line. Uh, and it's very frustrating to some of these younger officers because you know they could be lieutenants for 20 years right and and lieutenant the rank you have that dictates you know your your compensation your your pay and so you know the being a naval officer is not seen as the best career by many of them uh at this point it, it has problems for retention it has problems for uh promoting the initiative of of younger officers uh, it it's today it's something that we would grit you know it it it's is offensive to modern sensibility. You know, of course you promote more talented people faster. That's what we think. Uh, but in the Navy at the time, there was a greater emphasis on equity. Equity was seen as like, oh, well, you've been here, you've put in your time, so you know, you should get promoted in in line. Yeah. And there there was this sort of dynamic that you 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 noticed was happening kind of across professions, um, you know, in econ in, in like the economies more broadly. Is that like like there was this idea of things becoming professionalized. So you had the, you know, birth of medical schools and legal and and law schools and the Navy, the naval offices are sitting there being like, we should be a profession, too. Um, and so you have Mahan who's lobbying for like, uh, you know, just like give us some respect. We need to like have a place where we can study and strategize. And then you have Taylor who's, you know, pushing this this scientific vision of of, of, of management. And then all of a sudden like the Navy has to realize like, oh, wait, like we need engineers. And that's the, <laughs> a different skill set than like Horatio Nelson of just like being brave and like standing up there and like telling people to fire their guns. Um, so a lot sort of, of, of you know, like uh, the afterburners of industrialization that uh, uh, or the industrial revolution that the, that the Navy is having to process just like every other organization. You know, what's interesting is like, incorporate in, in sort of the corporate world world in America, like you have this very clear kind of like natural selection process, right? Where, um, you know, if you're Henry Ford, like you're going to make cars, more cars cheaper than your competitor and sort of your model will win. But the sort of forcing functions that the Navy has and the sort of breakers that they have on change is very different. Like, yes, you fought this war um, you know, you fought this kind of like weird war with this dying Spanish empire and you're like kind of worried about Germany, but then there are people in Congress who like want to save money on promoting people. So like decide that it's okay to have like 67 year old admirals that like only, you know, are in that role for half a year and then like die. And so you don't have to pay their pension or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, that was a lot, but I do want to come back to this idea of this sort of like dueling tension of like what it meant to be a professional Navy officer that you identified of this Mahan vision of like, this is a art and this is sort of like a humanities thing that we need to study and learn from history. And then, and then this Taylorite vision of like, you know, management science, like there are equations that we need to put into place. Like we can have sort of rigid processes for, um, you know, how we're going to run this entire thing. How did those two themes play out as the Navy was starting to grow up? There is this introduction of the challenge of engineering. Ships are changing. Ships, you know, in the, in sort of the mid 19th century, you know, you have 
you know, the very famous fight of ironclads in the American Civil War, Monitor, uh, CSS Virginia, and so on. Uh, but most of the ships after that are still, they're made out of wood. Uh, metallurgy is uh, not terribly sophisticated, but now ships in you know the 1880s and so on, the, the United States Navy starts to think about, well, we need, we need steel ships. We've got to make them modern. They're going to be steam driven. Uh, we need people who understand metallurgy. We need people who understand steam engineering. We need people who can do this sort of work. And it's initially thought of as separate from, you know, what are called line officers, the people who command ships and sailors will have engineers and this will be a specialist area and that leads to a great deal of tension in the late 19th century because as it becomes more important to understand the engineering principles behind how a ship operates and runs you know the electricity the steam plant etc you have to know those things to be able to command well because what a ship can and cannot do in terms of steaming range or speed or other things are very much influenced by the engineering so the engineering officers start to chafe because they're not in command positions uh, and and they think they should be, uh, and that tension doesn't really get resolved until there is you know an act of Congress you know pushed through uh, again under the administration of uh, Davis uh, John Davis Long to try to uh, reconcile this this tension. And one of the things that they do is say, okay, we're going to make every naval officer an engineering officer. We're going to transform the curriculum at Annapolis. You know, we think of that as an engineering school today, but that really dates from, you know, sort of the, the dawn of the 20th century, the last years of the 19th. Uh, and that's where they introduce it. So now the young naval officers who are coming in have training in engineering, and that gives them uh, a sensibility of how to evaluate things, you know, because if you're trained as an engineer, you're, you learn something about physical principles, you learn something about experimentation, trial and error, and they start to bring that concept into how they serve as officers, which is untraditional at this point and potentially threatening to some of the established uh, hierarchy. So that, that in the early years of the 20th century, before the U.S. entry into World War I, you see some of this, some of this tension uh, being worked out. Yeah, I I love the kind of uh, the, the the cultural clash that you uh, related, where uh, you know the the engineers were quote like invariably humiliated, and the smart ones left, uh, and you know ended up like getting a job that paid more and uh, in 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 civilian life because you know you had U.S. steel and like all this manufacturing going on, like you can build things for places that don't treat you like crap and pay you appropriately, <laughs> which you know. Might be a little echo of what we're potentially seeing today in the context of the Department of Defense and, you know, software engineers, uh, uh, software engineers in the 21st century. And, you know, it, it's it's funny because, like, we just had this Biden uh, AI executive order where they had their, like, little come to Jesus moment. And there's like, you know, we're going on an AI hiring spree and we're going to have direct hiring authority and all this stuff. It's like, well. You know, this is after 40 years of you treating the, uh, you know, treating the, I mean, not 40 years, or 150 years of you treating the engineers like crap. Um, I, you know, there are interesting sort of different turning points of, um, you know, who wakes up and when and sort of what is the causation for it. And you have these like, I don't know, slightly more visionary leaders like a Teddy Roosevelt who's like in his position for a weird reason. Uh, you know, he's kind of young, left, you know, a little, a little off. Same thing, same thing happening, of course, with, um, uh, uh, with Churchill on the other side of the, um, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic, where he's, you know, a lot more open to these, uh, 
sort of new innovative uh, uh, ways of thinking about the, the role of um, uh, submarines and destroyers and what have you. Um, but I want to come to I want to come back to sort of two things which I thought were really interesting in how they sort of shook up the system. First, someone had the brilliant idea of doing competitive target practice. And um, just uh, why, don't, why don't you tell that story of like just the numbers being there of who's good and who's bad and, you know, how effective these ships were and weren't and just how important that was in, in getting um, uh, the rest of the system to wake up about just how much was broken um, in the Navy in the early 20th century. Yeah, this is this is something that is is very much prompted by uh, you know the Spanish American War. The 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 accuracy of U.S. Navy ships in the Spanish American War was, was pretty terrible. I forget exactly what the numbers are, but it's somewhere around like one or one and a half percent of something like this of of shots fired actually hit their targets. Uh, it's it's and they know it's bad. They know it's bad. I mean, like the Battle of Santiago is an example of this. Um, and they're like, oh, it's terrible. It's a U.S. victory. The United States. Uh, wins um but um so then they're like okay how how do we how do we make this better and so there is this thought of well we'll have an inspector who's responsible for target practice and they will define the rules whereby we will conduct these target practices and initially they start off they're very unsophisticated you know the target doesn't move it's at short ranges and one of the reasons accuracy at this time is relatively poor is because there's an assumption um, that every individual pointer, it's the person who's sort of like aiming the gun, is going to be responsible for bringing that gun on target. Now, you could think, you know, in a world where you've got like very highly trained, accurate pointers, then, you know, maybe you could shoot very well. But, oh, you know, there's a lot of variability in terms of, of, of quality. And the big challenge that uh, ships start to face is as ranges get farther, you know, as you want to shoot these guns a little bit more distant because the guns are getting that there are newer powders, which provide higher velocity to the guns. Uh, the guns get longer in order to take advantage of the slower burning powder uh, and the velocity that it can impart. So they can shoot to longer and longer ranges. And it gets to the point where a pointer, an individual pointer cannot see cannot spot their own fall of shot and correct for it, like tell where their shell landed relative to other shells and then, you know, make any necessary uh, adjustments. It just becomes impossible. And so now you have to figure out, well, how are we going to, how, how are we going to encourage better, better shooting? So there's a competition around this, the, the target practice. It's every year, every ship is evaluated, sort of ranked by type, battleships get ranked, cruisers get ranked, et cetera, et cetera. And so this spurs a lot of uh, innovation. You talked about uh, sort of empowering software engineers today. And I think this is where some useful analogies might exist. Because one of the things that happens is you get these younger officers, they've got engineering training, and they're like, okay, I need to be able to shoot better. What kind of tool would help me with that? You know, what kind of calculations do I need to make? And can I engineer a machine that will help me do those calculations? And you see a couple of these start to emerge. Uh, but the Bureau of Ordnance, the, so the Navy had different technical bureaus at the time where a lot of the sort of the, the, the engineering work was done. One was the, the Bureau of Ordnance. They're responsible for guns and for what starts to be created, fire control equipment. And so they and, and other groups are monitoring these practices and they start to think, well, what do we need? Oh, people are creating these calculating devices and they're creating these clocks that begin to measure the change of range. So you know, if the range is changing at a constant rate, we'll know what it's going to be, you know, 
uh, uh, three minutes from now or whatever uh, as we get closer to the target. So we'll know the range at which to, to sort of aim the guns. Uh, and you get experimentation in the ships. You get uh, these other groups, the Bureau of Ordnance or Fire Control Boards reviewing the art of practice. And suddenly there's this feedback loop between the experimentation that happens aboard the ships, the results of the gunnery practices, and what tools are being used and what tools might we need in order to shoot more effectively. And so from around about 1903 to 1915, you see increasing sophistication in the, the nature of the practices. Targets aren't stationary anymore. Targets move. Ranges increase. Sometimes there are experimental firings at much longer ranges to try to test the ability of ships in their systems. And you also start to see not just sort of home-built fire control devices, but ones that the Bureau of Ordnance is sponsoring and integrating into ships and experimenting with to try to see what tools are going to make it easier for us to hit things at a distance. And a fundamental change that you see aboard the ships themselves is no longer are we relying on an individual gun pointer to point and aim. Instead, we're going to create a centralized body, a team that is going to keep track of the target, its bearing, its range, and try to predict where it's going to be in the future so that we can then send the right orders to all the different guns. And now the pointer, instead of trying to see the target and correct the false shot, the pointer is just match what's called matching pointers. It's getting an order from the centralized uh, fire control system. He's got where a guy his in gun the cage. is actually aiming. <laughs> Way up yep. on the and top of the ship. He's aiming them together and then boom, off, off the chute. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Spotting is done from a guy at the top of a cage mast. And the cages are used deliberately because the thinking was they're, they're relatively unique. It's only the U.S. dreadnoughts that have that. Well, I think there might be some Russians. I forget. Um, but also the uh, Argentine uh, battleships have them too because they're built in the United States. Uh, but the idea was if you have this lattice cage, if a shell goes through it and breaks some of the uh, members of that cage, the, 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 the mast will remain in place. Uh, that was the thought anyway. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, so they're up there and that's where they spot the fall of shot from. It becomes a centralized mechanism. Anyway, so, you know, it's 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 interesting because you have this sort of like capability overhang that you then need people with a sort of engineering mindset to fill in, because I'm sure, you know, in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, like the right like the the model that ended up winning out was having this sort of artisanal aiming where, you know, you're trained for 30 years and it's this apprenticeship system. And, you know, you didn't have electronics that could communicate. The guns weren't firing that far anyways. And, you know, the, the, the dominant strategy that run out, won out to shoot your cannonball and win your, you know, engagement was this, you know, every spotter for themselves kind of thing. And, you know, this was an incredibly difficult skill to master, right? Like the ships are rolling, remember? You know, the water isn't flat and, um, you know, your boat's moving, the other boat is moving. And, but you don't necessarily need a computer to do the trigonometry for you if you have 30 years of, of, of repetition and you can see the target you're aiming at. Um, and, you know, you, you can kind of make it work just without, um, you know, without necessarily having an engineering degree. But as you said, you know, once the technology ends up enabling things that are sort of beyond what, you know, uh, like an artisanal aimer can, can do, then you get you have to get into this whole 
kind of like learning network mindset, um, which gets like spurned on by, you know, having 20 year old men be embarrassed by their ship sucking in the contest. And, you know, all of a sudden it becoming this, um, uh, you know, this, 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 this very happy, virtuous system where by the, by the start of World War II, you really have this world-class system where, you know, there are all these different nodes on the boat that are interacting with each other and sort of feeding together into having, um, you know, much, much, much better aim with, um, uh, th that's able to take, take, uh, broadly take advantage of what the technology was, um, uh, was capable of in the, um, uh, in the 1930s and forties. I just, you want to double down on that a little bit because you're right. The, the technology, get, you know, advances too fast and, and the Navy gets lucky to a certain extent, because I don't think this is, this is, there's a lot of intentional design behind it, but you do have, yeah, these younger officers who have this engineering background who are motivated to solve this problem. You don't have a top-down solution that gets imposed. Instead, you have that what the top down does is it introduces this this structure, the the the, the gunnery competitions that they want to do well in because you know you could get financial incentives if your ship does really well you get compensated, uh, and so they're really motivated to do well, and they find ways to do it. So there is a this marriage of like bottom up experimentation with uh, an assessment mechanism from the top, uh, and the goal. You know, because part of the assessment is, can you hit the target quickly and can you hit it many times? So there's a, there's a scoring that incentivizes early uh, hits on the target. And it, all that together begins to prompt the emergence of better fire control techniques, not just the, the technical systems, but also the procedures that are involved in, with it as well. Can we talk a little bit about the impact of the dreadnought? like the atom bomb of its day, I guess. <laughs> um, sort of what did, what was this ship? Why was, and why was it so impactful and being another spur to help uh, uh, the U.S. Navy realize that it had to start getting its shit together? Yeah, well, the, the U.S. Navy was thinking about dreadnought type things uh, before HMS Dreadnought, which is the namesake of this ship type, uh, really comes out. And it's it's a new concept for what a battleship is. Uh, and there's, there's, two major components to it uh initially and one is uh all the guns are of the major the major caliber so that's one component universal sized main battery the other component is turbine propulsion so before that time most battleships are powered by reciprocating engines uh you know which are going to move up and down and they will have more uh, vibration and they will induce more vibration into the hull there'll be less fuel efficient at high speeds, and they will also make the gunnery challenge a little bit more difficult because of that vibration. So Dreadnought is built to be, you know, a higher speed. Uh, it's faster than, than other battleships at the time by a significant amount. Uh, and also to be able, so it can choose the range at which it wants to fight. And it has guns that can fight at longer ranges, or if you get closer, can be much more powerful uh, per unit time. Uh, and so it, changes paradigmatically how you would fight uh with large ships in, in naval combat so let's let's come up to world war one we have the sort of so we have the battle of jutland which i think is probably like the most formative experience for a lot of the 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 naval officers when they're studying what happened and trying to think about you know what what to set up for for world war ii um i had a really fun time going through uh, the rules of the game uh, by Andrew Gordon. Um, I'm sort of I'm I'm curious, you know, let's start with like what the lessons that they took from that battle were then and, you know, maybe how how 
how the sort of takeaway of the 1920s lines up with, uh, you know, modern scholarship of, um, you know, what really ended up driving how that uh, that battle turned out. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to assume a certain level of familiarity uh, on the listener's part with with uh, Jutland, that major naval battle of World War One. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about the 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 some of the lessons that the U.S. Navy officers were taking from the earlier fighting in World War One before Jutland, and they're really shocked at the ranges at which the the high seas fleet, the German forces and the British forces are shooting at each other. You know, it's twenty thousand yards or so which is, you know, beyond the engagement ranges that the U.S. Navy was planning. So there's a, oh, gee, you know, we've been doing a lot with gunnery. We have to get even better. And the speeds at which the ships are steaming, um, it's because some of these early battles are dominated by battlecruiser types, uh, which can go pretty fast. So they're a little surprised that the, 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 the British and the Germans are steaming so fast and shooting at each other at such a long range. And that spurs an incentive to try to you know, figure out how to do those things. And then... Jutland, because it is the major clash of fleets of World War I, uh, the U.S. Navy looks at it as a, like a nice example story for how to think about uh, the challenges of naval combat in the interwar period. They were very invested, this goes back to my hand, to the idea of, well, we need to look at historical examples to draw out principles that are going to be relevant uh, across time periods, you know, it, regardless of what kind of technology is available and regardless of the circumstances of a particular conflict. And if, if we understand those principles, then we can understand when and how to apply different ones. And some of the examinations of Jutland that were done at the Naval War College in the 1920s do exactly that. They say, ah, here, look, here's an example. For example, they look at um, Admiral uh, Reinhard Scheer's formation and it's there. It's they criticize it extremely because it doesn't uh, apply the principle of security well enough. Meaning, the screening forces are not distant enough from the main body, and so Shear gets surprised, and he does. He follows the British forces into essentially what becomes a trap where the the British uh, Grand Fleet uh, can bring most of its guns to bear upon the, the front of his, of his battle line. And the only thing that really allows them to escape is this very complex maneuver where each battleship turns in sequence, starting from the rear, they execute this, this 360 turn, uh, and, and get out. Um, they have to do it again later in the battle, but anyway, um, so there are these principles that they've drawn out about naval combat. Jutland becomes a vehicle for teaching the importance of these principles and how they have been or have not been applied. In addition to that, because the United States eventually joins World War I, it gains exposure to some of the techniques that the Royal Navy is employing. The U.S. Navy learns about plotting, gets more sophisticated gunnery procedures, you know, learning and practice with the Royal Navy. The other thing they get exposure to is the Grand Fleet Battle Orders, which is something that gets criticized in the Gordon's The Rules of the Game. And U.S. Navy officers look at it like, oh, this is lengthy. This is prescriptive. This is trying to account for lots of different circumstances. And they believe that this could uh, hamstring the initiative of subordinate officers. And so they recoil against it a little bit. They're like, okay, when it comes time for us to figure out how we're going to fight, we're not going to do it this way. We're not going to be so prescriptive. We're going to be much more open-ended. We're going to convey general principles to subordinates, and we're going to try to encourage their individual initiative and their aggressiveness. And there's a great study of Jutland written by um, 
a retired U.S. officer, it's Holloway Frost. I think it comes out in the early 30s, if I remember right. Um, and he's got something in there uh, about uh, some British destroyers run into some German ships in the middle of the night after the main day daylight action. And Frost says something along the lines of, well, if that had been an American destroyer division, because he had served in destroyers, he, he, he knew what this was like, uh, it would have been very different. And we would have been much more aggressive and we would have damaged the Germans. And the subtext is we might have all died, but at least we would have, you know, socked it up and had a good time of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, you know, there's this there's this interesting tension that runs through your book and runs through the sort of U.S. Navy and World War Two, because you know, the, the story of of, of Jellico and uh, the rules of the game is basically that, like, they had the, the British had this opportunity where if they weren't as you know, or if they weren't sort of as like doctrinally bound and, and, um, uh, you know, had to listen to what the, um, what, what Jellicoe said, then they could have taken advantage of more opportunities and really landed this, you know, grand strategic blow on, uh, on Germany in a way that, um, they weren't able to because they didn't have this initiative. So then, you know, you have over the course of the twenties and thirties, as your book points out this, this, sort of, I don't know, like classic American individualism, whatever. Um, um, but it kind of turns out to be a bit of a mess for the first few years of of, of World War II, where um, you're expecting to have this kind of like free-flowing jazz type uh, of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, naval management, but it ends up just like devolving into, into a mess and you have sort of missed opportunities that end up going the other way. But I do think, and this is a good time for us to talk about just how the, the, the Navy learned in the 20s and 30s, that having that, like, you know, not top-down, rigid, uh, you know, th there's a time for tightening and a time for loosening, I think. And, you know, in, 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 in the 20s and 30s, where you had so much technological change, and uh, it, it seemed to be very helpful for the um, uh, for the U.S. Navy to come out of World War One with this ethos that, like, look, there's a very large sort of uh, space for us to explore what is the best way to, um, you know, develop these ships and 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 deploy them, and we're going to explore that, not just like try to write the Bible and you know teach uh, and 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 teach to it in a very explicit manner. Yeah. So there's you can look at. Um the evolution of the U.S. Navy's fire control systems uh, prompted by uh, the gunnery exercises before the entry into World War I is sort of like a, a, a nascent version of then what gets made much more official and, and systematic in the interwar period. So they're not going to have a top-down set of battle orders like they saw the British do in World War I. So instead, we're going to encourage subordinate initiative. We're going to encourage the development of doctrine. We're going to do it at lower levels, right? So we're going to say, okay, you command a destroyer division. You have to work out how that division is going to fight. Get together with your subordinates. Get together with your captains. Understand the capabilities of your ship. And then develop techniques for how to fight together. And this is... Uh, promoted in a series of exercises that are all part of an annual cycle. So new recruits join the Navy. Uh, they learn how to work on their ships. Each ship gets moderately effective. And then the ships begin to practice in their established formations. Uh, and that all builds up to, at the end of the year, there is a major exercise. And these are the famous fleet problems of the 1920s and 1930s. And in those, these uh, officers are expected to, you know, follow the orders that come down to them 
in terms of how to, you know, to fight these groups. Uh, and some of them experiment and explore with new tactics and techniques. They sort of push the boundaries of tactics and doctrine uh, in order to develop new uh, approaches. And this is how or has been most, most visible in most of the existing literature when it comes to thinking about how airplanes begin to get integrated with the fleet. Right. Initially, you have the, the first U.S. aircraft carrier, Langley. Uh, it's not very capable, but it becomes much more capable through these patterns of exercises. And as they work out, you know, what does it mean to operate an aircraft carrier? And then when the large carriers, the converted battlecruisers, Lexington and Saratoga, join the fleet, now you have ships which are capable of you know, operating independently and working out nascent carrier task force tactics. So that's been visible you know, for, for many years now, what I tried to highlight was that's not unique to carriers and air power. This is something that the Navy was doing broadly. It's doing this with patrol planes. It's doing this with destroyers. It's doing this with surface warfare tactics. Like how do we fight a large major engagement? They're also doing it with, you know, how do we fight, how do we fight at night? If we're gonna, you know, fight a major fleet action in the Pacific, there might be an opportunity for light forces destroyers, which are armed with torpedoes, to seek out the enemy either the day, the night before a major battle or or the night after. How how are we going to do that? And and so through this mix, you get a similar pattern. New ideas emerge from the lower levels and then they are refined. The most effective of them are uh, identified and then replicated or, or promulgated through uh, future work by the feedback loop that the, the fleet exercises and the rules that govern them um, in, um, impose. And yeah. you can see increasingly sophisticated tactics and doctrine through this, this period and better embrace of you know, how to use the technologies that start to emerge, you know, more capable destroyers, more capable airplanes, and, and other new ship types. Yeah. So there's this sort of, we just had Nick Saban retire, right? And he has this <laughs> like... Uh, you know, idea the, the 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 way that folks describe Alabama football is soulless murder ball, where basically <laughs> the players have zero initiative and you know they're trained, you know, within an inch of their life to like do the exact thing that they're that they're um you know that they're that they're you know designed to do. And then you have like a genius coach who's just calling all the plays and and you know making everything work. And what I think was really interesting, which you portrayed in the in, in the Navy of the 20s and 30s was how it wasn't that, that it was all of this sort of informal interaction between all of the different officers who are, you know, having very healthy debates about what the right and wrong lessons were to be learned. And there was this sort of culture of, of, of experimentation um, that ended up being really, uh, you know, really healthy. And even though they didn't have all of the answers over the, you know, when, uh, when, when, when Pearl Harbor happened, you 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 had this organization that still was kind of like even though it grew like 10x over the course of a few years it was still kind of limber enough and the and the people who were in charge had the kind of mental openness to change that way in which they in which they conducted their business over the course of the war yeah yeah there is uh, one of the things that i think is remarkable about this this period is there's there's a level of comfort with uncertainty from i think some of the the higher level officers they're willing to accept the fact that they don't know how best to use some of these things, uh, but they're going to empower more junior officers who are there, you know, either commanding the destroyer division or like the, 
um, the, the, the scout bomber squadron or something like that. They're going to empower them to figure it out. Like you, you have to figure out what the ta best tactics of this thing, this platform will be. Uh, and if you do a good job, right, if, if we can see that you're, you know, aligning your subordinates around the themes that you think are going to be most effective and you're getting them to execute this and it's proving its worth in these exercises, then great, you're going to get promoted. Because one of the things that we haven't touched on, uh, but we should probably rewind a bit, is by this point, the Navy is promoting officers based on not where they are in line. You know, this changes at the end of the 19th century, but they are promoting them based on, you know, in initiative and uh, what they can, um, the talents that they can display. That becomes official, the ability to promote based on merit uh, in 1916 with, a, with the new Naval Personnel Act. Um, but anyway, so that is an ingredient in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and now, right, if you're a younger officer now, you're like, oh, I want to I wanna do well in these exercises. I want to show my worth. I want to show my creativity and how I can bring all those talents to the fore. And that is going to allow me to get promoted faster. Uh, so there's, yeah. there's a, an alignment of um, across several levels, you know, the incentive structure as, as well as this sort of systematic uh, process that, that encourages learning. Yeah, it's it's just so crazy thinking about the like types of reforms, the personnel reforms that you got in the 1910s and 1920s. And it seems so obvious. And like but but and I'm sure there are going to be things, you know, like the, the things that we're seeing in the, um, uh, you know, I'm sure 30 years from now, there are also going to be personnel things. I mean, the one that strikes out to me is just like pay scales um, mm -hmm. that are still based on performance. And, you know, the, there are ceilings on which on on how much the U.S. government can can pay can pay federal employees, and like that's fine when um you know for a lot of more like I guess industrial era jobs or for positions where like you can't have a 10x employee, right? Like, but for 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 some of this stuff, it's you know it's same with the losing the losing the great engineers um back in uh, uh back in 1903. It's like. It would it might be really like like it in the sort of capitalist marketplace, like the most successful companies in the world have decided that it is in their interest to pay certain employees millions or even tens of millions of dollars. I mean, Nick Saban, for instance, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the fact that the U.S. government can't do that or has to do that through hiring, you know, through a bidding, you know, through an outside consulting process, which, you know, you have to go through this whole sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, bidding process and, and, you know, programs of record or whatever, it just seems like a wild thing that maybe we'll look back 30 years from now and think is as crazy as 1916, there being a law being passed where naval officers get promoted based on how good they are. Um, uh, anyways, sorry, back to our theme. Uh, uh, let's, let's come up to, uh, the USS San Francisco and Guadalcanal. What oh, was so kind of dramatic about that story and what did it expose about what um, the U.S. Navy still needed to learn um, if it was going to uh, win in the Pacific Theater? So, so one of the things that, uh, and you alluded to this earlier about sort of the mess that ensues when the war happens, when World War II uh, uh, occurs. So the Navy's, uh, a lot of this good work, this doctrinal evolution, is based on the the existing fleet structure, right? So you have officers who are responsible for a cruiser division or a destroyer squadron or whatever, and they're formulating their doctrines. They're doing it sort of low level, bottom up. 
that relies on an ability to keep that destroyer squadron or that cruiser division together so that they can employ the doctrine. And where this was possible early in the war, and there are examples from the Asiatic fleet where this could happen, the fight of the destroyers at the Battle of Balakpapan, for example, where it works. You know, the, the, the instructions that are issued to that group are basically, you know, one line long, uh, one or two sentences, if I remember right. And they fight cohesively. Now, in the battles off Guadalcanal that are fought in the latter half of 1942, this doesn't hold anymore. The, the Navy is being pressed on, you know, two, two fronts, has to fight a war in the Atlantic, has to fight a war in the Pacific. Mm. Uh, the fighting at Guadalcanal is at the end of a fairly long logistical pipeline. And so the ships that get thrown into battle oftentimes have not had the benefit of uh, developing that kind of doctrinal cohesion. Uh, and San Francisco's famous fight, this is the, the night action of 12, 13 November. The 13th happens to be a Friday. The battle is fought in the very early morning hours of that 13th uh, day of November. And uh, San Francisco is the flagship. Uh, she is uh, has uh, Rear Admiral Daniel Callahan um, as the commander of this, this task force. And he doesn't have a... a an ability because you know some of the ships haven't been together very long and some of them are just thrown into his task force that day and he doesn't have an ability to develop this shared sense of how to fight this doctrinal cohesion and he has a very significant challenge because the japanese want to retake the island of guadalcanal they've wanted to do this since the u.s invasion in uh, at the beginning of august 1942 and they are going to bring two battleships well screened by uh destroyers and, and other smaller ships uh, into um, Iron Bottom Sound or Savo Sound, uh, very close to the marine positions there on the northern shore of, of, of Guadalcanal. They're going to try to bombard the airfield with these battleship guns and wreck the planes that are there to make it easier for an invasion convoy to make it to the island. So Callahan knows that not only does he have to fight with this pickup team or scratch team, as, as they often call them, He's also got to stop this bombardment. And so he leans back on, this is a point that I make in, in Learning War, he leans back on what I call, you know, heuristics or established patterns of how to fight. And one of the established patterns that the Navy had uh, invested in, re remember the, the book that Frost wrote, is, you know, act aggressively. Sort of like when in doubt, start shooting, find an enemy ship and, and try to pulverize it. Um, and so... Callahan kind of relies on this. Uh, this night action, I've I've joked with others like you know John Parshall, who has you know written extensively about the Imperial Japanese Navy in World War II. That no one is ever going to produce uh, a track chart of this fight. It's too confused. It's too chaotic. Part of that's deliberate. Callahan intentionally provokes a melee. He wants to disrupt the cohesion of the Japanese formation. He wants to get his. In my opinion, I've tried to sort of reconstruct this best I can based on what's available to us. We don't know what Callahan was thinking, but he was killed during the action. Uh, but my opinion is that based on the orders that he gave and how the ships maneuvered, he was trying to position the three large cruisers that he had, San Francisco, Portland, and Helena, which is technically a light cruiser, but she's roughly the same size as the other two, uh, as close to the Japanese battleships as possible, because that would allow him to, if circumstances worked out, uh, damage or, or defeat each one of them in turn. 
doesn't work out. His formation disintegrates, and sort of the climax of the battle is San Francisco at very close range to the Japanese flagship PA, one of the battleships. Um, that's where Callahan is killed. That's where you know the majority of his staff are killed. The remaining bridge party is 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 killed on San Francisco, but he prevents the bombardment, uh, even though he loses a good number of ships uh, and 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 a lot of sailors, but. Uh, so the Japanese have to try again several nights later. But it, it is an important moment in defeating that Japanese attempt to retake the island. Uh, and it highlights how in the absence of anything that's going to lend any kind of cohesion as far as his formation, Callahan fall and his subordinates fall back on acting aggressively. And so the melee that he provokes, to a certain extent, plays into uh, the U.S. Navy's strengths. Um, and results in a, in a strategic victory, even if you can't call it a tactical one. So one of the points that you make, which both struck me in reading sort of World War World War One naval history, as well as early World War Two naval history, was like the lack of what is now known as a combat information center. Um, so you say that, you know, even though and this is like we're at the point where you have radar, um, but mm -hmm. we're still we're still in the sort of mindset of the 19th century where basically the captain, everyone is telling the captain, oh, our ship is here. Oh, it's going this knots that way. Oh, the wind is that. And like the mental model of, you know, what we're now up to like, you know, 30 ships sometimes is um, something that should be in the captain's head. And, you know, this sort of genius is going to come out. Were, were there really before... This became a thing in like 1942, 1943. Was there really no like guy and there was a there's no piece of paper and everyone has the little ships on the on the map? Was that like actually just something that everyone expected to be in the captain's head still? Well, well, there were uh, amongst ships of uh, a certain size, uh, particularly flagships. If you're going to have like a, an admiral of some rank commanding them, you would have a flag plot, right? So the admiral's a flag officer. He he would have a plot. There would be a flag plot. The problem is that that is um, those weren't updated with the the frequency or um, effectively enough to keep pace with some of these developing actions. It would help you keep track of you know what does your formation look like, um, how are we steaming, where are we going, that kind of stuff. But in some of these confused and chaotic battles like the one Callahan uh, fought, it breaks down. It doesn't keep pace with the evolving state of of the battle, and so officers like you just pointed out were expected to keep track of this in their mind right they especially on the smaller ships like destroyers there's no there's no big plot on a destroyer not this day and age instead there is a, you know the captain and what he can see or the information that he can be provided by by lookouts or or other positions and so there are as you point out there are too many data points there are too many potential ships there are too many potential you know hostile threats and there's too much information now from these new sources like radar. The, the Navy had invested in radar before World War II. And it was seen as this great panacea. Oh, it's going to allow us to see at night. It's going to penetrate the darkness. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that development of radar gets channelized into existing technical bureaus. So the Bureau of Ordnance, responsible for fire control, guns, armor, and the like, they develop radars. And those radars uh, work out fairly well because what they're focused on is measure the range to a target. So they strap a radar on existing gun directors and essentially it, it replaces uh, rangefinders or it augments rangefinders. 
So because you have an existing fire control system that needs to consume range information, if you shift away from range finders to radar, it's a simple sort of conceptual flip of the switch. Boom, integrates nicely. And there are very good examples uh, of the fighting off Guadalcanal where U.S. Navy ships take advantage of that. Oh, we have range information to the target. We're going to use that instead of radar or instead of um, uh, a range finder. And boom, you know, they can hit uh, opposing ships relatively quickly. The problem with making sense of uh, a battle, there you need a, a radar that can search. These became the responsibility of the Bureau of Ships, which was, you know, built ships or, you know, sort of integrated all the various components together. And uh, there you, you get increasingly sophisticated or increasingly capable radars, but there's no good sense of how to integrate that into shipboard functions. This is why the need for the CIC arises, because instead it's kind of treated as just another lookout. Oh, another data point. There is a target at such and such bearing, at such and such range. I'm going to share that with the captain. Now, if you got that information, you were a captain, you'd be like, okay, there's a target out there at such and such a range. How fast is it moving? Is it coming toward us? Is it hanging away from us? Uh, so there's, there's all this information that you would need in addition that some of these early radar reports didn't provide. And so one of the things that happens in that same battle that Callahan fights, the, the last destroyer in the American line is Fletcher. Uh, and it has the, the most sophisticated search radar of the time, uh, the mm -hmm. SG radar. And it has a uh, plan position indicator display, a PPI display, which is what we all think about. It's sort of the bird's eye view when you see radar. And the executive officer, um, a guy named Joseph Wiley, looks at that display and kind of straddles the bulkhead. So he's got one eye that can see the display. He's got, got one phones on that he's jacked into various communication circuits. He's got his other leg out the door so you can see what's happening around the ship. A very uh, nascent form of a combat information center. If, essentially, they say they delegate making sense of the world to Wiley's brain. Uh, and he uses the best tools that he has available to do that. It allows Fletcher to emerge from the battle unscathed. And it, making sense of the world happening at Admiral Nimitz's Pacific Fleet headquarters in parallel with this is a realization based on earlier battles at the center. If, essentially, they say they delegate making sense of the world is coming available. Clyde is, oh, you've worked out how to do this. We need to know better how to do this so that we can provide more explicit instructions. Come back to Hawaii and help us figure this stuff out. Uh, which I think is a great example of how this learning is going on at multiple levels within the Pacific Fleet during the war. During the war. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, just uh, just a, a little detour into like the how visualize like the just the different ways of visualizing the information you got back from the radar ended up you know all of a sudden unlocking its utility. Oh yeah. So what they do, uh, one of the key aspects of sort of the anchor of what makes a combat information center work at, at this at this time is uh, a plot. Because the radar displays, some of them can be quite confusing. I mentioned the PPI display associated with the SG, but the earlier radars had what they called an A-scope, which is basically an oscilloscope. Uh, range across the bottom, the strength of return signal across the top. And so that gives you, it's difficult to relate that to the real world. You know, uh, the strength of signal is going to depend on where the radar is pointing. So you have to keep track of the bearing information in your head. Um, you can read off the range. So it's relatively easy for some an operator to share that information 
But then that information has to be translated to uh, a representation of the real world. And so they would take that information and then plot it because different passes of the radar are going to give you a different sense of, of that contact. And that will uh, help you understand where is it moving because you'll plot its different positions over time. You can get a sense of its heading and its speed and whether or not it's turning. PPI makes it a little bit easier to do that, but still it's temporal. It only gives you what is the radar return signal right now at this moment in time. And you need a historical sense to be able to understand the movements of these other uh, uh, potential or, or these contacts, which are potential enemy ships or potentially your own ships. And if you can see that movement over time, if you can track the plot, that is what allows you to make better sense of, is this a potential enemy ship? Is this a friendly ship? How have our how have we moved? How have they moved? And it it that visual uh, is easy to grasp relatively quickly. So as these CIC started to get organized, you'd have radar operators which would report this information. You had have plotters which would plot this information, and then you'd have someone called an evaluator, which would be looking at the plots and translating them into actionable information that the commanding officer or that the ship's weapon systems could could use. So it breaks down the problem of gathering specific pieces of data, trans integrating them together, translating that into information uh, amongst the team. No longer has to happen in one person's head. Doesn't happen just in like Wiley's head as a nascent experiment. It happens in this team-based structure. As they get better as a team, as they get more practiced as a team, the CICs become more and more effective and unlock an ability to tie the Navy's tactical capabilities with the emerging technology and its increasing sophistication as better and better radars come into service. Yeah, I mean, I love this, this idea of distributed cognition, um, of just like whose job it is to think the thing. And you know, <laughs> in, the, in the sort of Callahan pre-CIC, like messy like not useful radar, um, you just have some nodes which end up being overloaded when they really should be thinking about other things. And, um, uh, you know, slowly you can offload more stuff to computers in the case of the radar being the top down thing that we all think of as radar, where, you know, it pings a thing that's moving over time and you're scanning all around as opposed to, you know, someone like literally pointing a radar at a place and like hoping they they find something. Um, and then you have this like offloaded brain from the captain of these, you know, 10, 15 people running around doing the plots and 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 making sure that you have the most up to date information about where all, um, you know, your ships and the enemy ships are. And, you know, coming coming to today. Right. It's like now we have Palantir, um, you know, mapping like every single friendly and enemy, like down to the person using satellites and, and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm sure. Like it's it's hard to to get our head back to the place where like these boats still had to communicate via semaphore, um, but <laughs> um, and you know did not didn't have GPS, didn't know where they were on the planet, right? But and so you know the the kind of amount of uh, of of cognitive load that will we're gonna you know end up being able to distribute to computers, um, you know, in the next fifteen or twenty years is more likely will not will be some other kind of crazy amount of of uh you know upgrade at the, sort of at the same level of all of a sudden we have to use our eyes and our brains to get all the you know we have to use our eyes and we only tr trust one's per one person's brain to put all the ships together to you know now we just have like you know uh, skynet uh kind of pl plotting a whole battle space for you so the sort of battle between the like insurgents and the 
um, uh, uh, you know, and the traditionalists, I think, is something that has kind of played out over the course of this story and, you know, still plays out today. I'm curious, you know, to what extent um, as you have something like um, Pac-10, which is the which is the Navy's kind of answer to having a more organized doctrinal thing. So, you know, less jazz, more sheet music. And we're moving away from everything is on the captain and it's all in the captain's head and it's their sort of like brilliance and Elon that brings you through. <laughs> um, you know, were, th were there sort of folks who were uncomfortable with this? What was the kind of uh, push and pull as people were trying to navigate be between all of these different scenarios, particularly now that we're in, we're in wartime? Oh, yeah. So you mentioned, uh, well, first I want to um, just reinforce the distributed cognition point that, that I, I, love that term. And that's what I think that the CIC is a great example of, right? Distributing the cognitive burden, making sense of what is the battle space uh, to a team rather than just trying to do it in one person's head. Then you mentioned PAC-10, which is the Pacific Fleet uh, Current Orders and Doctrine, which comes out in June 1943. This is an outgrowth of the experience at, at, at Guadalcanal and the early carrier battles. And like you say, it is an answer because um, before the war, doctrinal development is embedded in these formations. You need stability in the formations, the cruiser divisions, the destroyer squadrons in order for it to work. War proves that stability cannot hold. We need to be able to reconfigure formations on the fly. How do we do that? Well, we're going to move sort of doctrinal development up a level. Uh, it will be done at, at the fleet or at the task force level, and that will have patterns that we can employ. It's It's got this very sort of uh, nice vocabulary of battle plans, which you see showing up repeatedly in plans and orders from that time forward. Um, so it, it, it lends additional uh, cohesion. I I don't think there was much, or at least I haven't detected much uh, resistance uh, to that. What you still see, though, is a great deal. Uh, it's not a substitute for the kind of cohesion that that is necessary from from practice. You know, ships still need uh, an ability to to work together so that captains and and formation commanders can become familiar. And if they don't, uh, even if they can lean on the instructions that are in Pac-10, uh, you you see hesitation or uh, challenges in 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 combat. Perhaps one of the best examples of that is so, um, Admiral Willis Lee. He was uh, commanding the Pacific Fleet's battleship forces, and there's an opportunity uh, for him to take his forces, separate them from the carrier forces uh, on the at the Battle of the Philippine Sea, and potentially engage the Japanese in a night battle. And when he's asked, you know, hey, do do you want to do that? Um, he responds with a negative because he thinks that fighting at night, without the ability to practice, which the battleships haven't had. Uh, or at least sufficiently up to that point, because of all the maneuvers of the of the carrier force over the preceding months, uh, is going to be too risky. You know, no better wait till the daylight comes, fight a carrier battle, and then the battleships can clean up afterwards if there's if there are any Japanese forces that are threatening that remain. Um, so Lee Lee says no, and one of the reasons he says no is because you know we haven't had enough time to practice. We we can't just use you know the Pac-10 material. We need to develop these habits and these routines. Uh, and I think you see where some of the potentially negative results of that can happen in the Battle of Surigao Strait. Now, that is a significant uh, U.S. victory. The Japanese force is almost entirely obliterated. However, uh, there are examples of friendly fire that occur 
in part because you know U.S. destroyers are making close-range torpedo attacks against the leading Japanese battleship while it is under fire from U.S. cruisers and destroyers. Oh, Allied cruisers and destroyers, I should say, because it's, it's an Allied force fighting there, not just an American one. Yeah, so some of that comes from lack of familiarity, lack of practice, and, and to a certain degree, some of the destroyers putting themselves in a very dangerous spot. Yeah, I mean, there's this there's this really interesting kind of tension where on the one hand war starts and like a lot of the bullshit goes away like it's a lot easier to fire people it's a lot easier um you know you have you have all this new data coming in in terms of all these after action reports like people don't want to die they want to win and so you know a lot of the kind of like old um you know you know what what like the sort of evolutionary pressures on uh, on a fighting force are much more aggressive than they would be in peacetime. But at the same time, you know, in the 20s and 30s, you had this like, you know, almost like adorable, like motley crew of young, uh, you know, officers who have to get creative because they're not super well funded. And, um, you know, you have this very sort of free flowing um, uh, uh, intellectual and, you know, professional community that's able to sort of iterate at their own speed without the pressure of, uh, you know, all of a sudden their, in, their institution just having ballooned, um, and, you know, by a hundred X in, 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 in size. So, um, you know, you, like, what do you think was ended up working? And maybe this comes back to, um, uh, uh maybe this is where we bring Nimitz in of maintaining that, you know, make sure that you're channeling all of that you know, evolutionary pressure and, and nervous energy into learning while at the same time you're operating at a scale that you've never before uh, done in your organization's history? I, I think it gets really difficult. Uh, I think the, the Navy still does a pretty good job. I think the the Pacific Fleet in particular does a good job under, under Nimitz's direction. Uh, he seems very focused on uh, maintaining this ability to adapt, adjust, learn, evolve uh, tactics, doctrine, and the like. Uh, he, he takes some steps periodically through the war to, to make sure that that's, that that's happening. And, it, and, it, and it's a valuable dynamic. They, you know, they're encouraging this experimentation at low levels. At the same time, Nimitz or his subordinate commands are issuing you know, updates, uh, like the instructions to establish a combat information center based on lessons that they had gathered around the same time. There's a new set of instructions about you know, how best to... Um, conduct what they call the night search and attack. Basically, the uh, if you're going to get some destroyers or other light forces together to attack an enemy formation at night, how do you do that? Um, in November 1942, updated instructions for how for how to do that came out. So there's there's sort of this upper level of we're going to, to sit here and identify the best tactics and techniques that are emerging from the lessons of war, and we're, then we're going to reissue that back down. And the feedback loop within the Pacific Fleet itself is relatively tight. It's slower if you go back up to the to the fleet level. It's several months uh, uh, slower, but they're trying to do a similar kind of thing uh, at the level of uh, Nimitz's superior, uh, Admiral Ernest King, who's the Navy's commander in chief. Um, but it's I think it's difficult. And one of the the, the um, theses that I have in in learning war is that as the Navy gets so big. It becomes more and more difficult to allow the kind of collegial flexibility that you see in the interwar period that you were referring to, uh, and instead that is replaced by more standardized patterns and procedures. 
And uh, one of the the anecdotes that I remember pretty well is, you know, an officer who had, you know, brought a ship into commission early, in, earlier in his career um, in the in the 30s. I think it's a, a small destroyer, and he can reconfigure the interior structure of that ship uh, as it's fitting out to to better suit his sensibilities of how that's going to work. Then in wartime, he learns more. Uh, and he wants to do something similar. Now he's bringing one of the the battle cruisers. I forget whether it's Alaska or Guam into commission. And they're like the people fitting it out are like, nope, sorry, sir. Standard. There's a standard way to do this. And, and this is specifically, if I remember right, with the, the configuration of the combat information center and the radar displays in it and everything else. So like, yeah, he wanted nope, it like reach- on a wall, <laughs> and they said no, it has to be yeah. on a table or something. He said no, it's got to be this way. Yeah, 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 because this is this is. Standard. So, so what you see is sort of this ossification or this this channelization based on what has been decided as best practice, and because of our size and our scale and the need to do things quickly, we're going to do it that way. We're not going to allow the same kind of uh, variability that we did in the fleet before, because variability in wartime has, to a certain extent, led to people dying. Uh, so we don't want that. We're going to gravitate toward these things that we know work. And we know we're going to be safer, uh, and so do it that way. And and so I think you see this this the Navy passes a little bit of an inflection point. Um, I've had some people criticize my uh, conclusion for saying that. Well, you know this this went on a little bit in the in the post war period because you still have some officers who were there in the twenties and thirties. They still have that mindset. They carry that into the early Cold War period. Um, but I think a lot of that um, has passed uh, now. And one of the things that I'm interested in. Uh, I know much less about what the Navy does today, but, you know, I study from what I can read in magazines and whatnot. And like, what's going on with unmanned systems or uncrewed systems? And you know, are they experimenting with those similar to how they did in the 20s and 30s? And, and you know, you read some of those reports in an optimistic light and you think, well, maybe they are. And, but I, I don't know. Uh, but I think it's it's a great parallel potentially, uh, between what we see today with some of the technology and what can happen with, uh, artificial intelligence and what the Navy was doing with like, um, air power in the, in the 1930s. There was, cause there was just so much, I mean, you know, like people think of when, when, when people think of military history in general, like you think of generals making big decisions to move troops from here to there. And, you know, the the call in midway to get the get the get the planes off faster than the Japanese or whatever. And and everyone in, in you know the YouTube videos that that have millions of views are all about sort of these kind of like these like tactical decisions. And sometimes like in history, it actually ends up really mattering that tactical decision. But sort of my takeaway from uh you know reading your and other books about this about this learning war is 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 like when you're in a somewhat repeated game like when you're when your war really isn't just one battle um uh the kind of two things matter right we got the yamamoto like how many ships can you build um which sort of sets the you know sets the odds i think at the beginning and then you really come down to this um you know, this, this sort of these questions of organizational design, like, are you able to search through the sort of, um, expanse of all the potential ways you could use your tools at your disposal and find the one that that's, you know, right for the, the situation in the moment and the technological paradigm that you're living in. 
And are you able to both, you know, find it as well as disseminate it in a way where, um, you know, it's not just the brilliant guy who is, is, is on your destroyer and has like one foot out the window and is able to synthesize it just because, you know, everything's clicked for him, but you can get the, you know, the median, uh, officer up to speed on what it, what are really best practices for your, for your time and place. And, um, it was a real pleasure getting to sort of uh, through through this work study one of the organizations in in human history that was able to do this on uh, you know at a speed and scale that's really relevant still for the um uh, you know for 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 the twenty first century. Yeah, well, that brings it back to the beginning, doesn't it? Your question about why why is it, why is the U.S. Navy of a hundred years ago matter? Well, yeah, here th- th- this is why. Yeah, they were able to do this at speed and at scale, and I think it's really important. Uh, I think it's important in a lot of contexts, but I think it's very important if we think about a, a, a military or or a wartime context, because like the the best way to to um, I'll just call it fight is is ever changing because different different nations have different capabilities, different alliance structures have different capabilities, and you need to figure out how to maximize those capabilities and minimize those of an enemy, and it's dynamic, you know. Clausewitz, you know, famously framed that, you know, it's this, it's this dynamic struggle. And so there will be, you know, the enemy is constantly searching for an advantage. So you have to constantly be searching for an advantage as well. And if you can identify potential advantages, determine whether or not they are truly advantages and then exploit them faster, uh, then you can tilt the playing field in your favor. And, and I think that's, that's really important. So you have this great quote from Williamson Murray um, of all the activities in which mankind engages. It is the conduct of war that envelops it with the greatest degree of uncertainty, ambiguity and friction. And, you mm-hmm. know, we, we were talking about earlier sort of like management lessons that you could take from from Bull or Palantir or whatever. But like the problem is there's something different when Callahan is literally the guy on the ship whose life is on the line with his decision. And, you know, whatever Tim Hook is going to decide about what, how to price the Vision Pro or where to build the iPhone, like no one's going to die if he screws no. up um, or if, you know, Apple disappears tomorrow. And I think the sort of competitive dynamics and the stakes that are involved for the players um, just end up kind of heightening and sharpening the, the institutions and organizations that end up playing in this space such that I do think there really is something special that you can learn. Um, really only from military history and not necessarily from studying other organizations that were sort of living at the same time. And were also, you know, subject to competitive pressures, but not these sorts of life or death ones um, where you're, um, you know, where your opponent is, is, um, you know, facing the same stakes that um, uh, stakes that you are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's a great point. Yeah. That's one of the things that draws me to it. Uh, it is, uh, you know, and that quote is very good. Like there's nothing that quite compares to it. Um, but also there's, there's a lot of documentary evidence that exists, which is nice. Like, you know, you can go and you can read plans and orders, uh, that the, that Naval officers crafted. You can go and read these action reports. You can look at, um, the records of these, uh, exercises in the twenties and thirties. So you can get into the mix in a way that I think with a lot of, you know, studying, uh, businesses or industry can be more difficult just because the the primary sources haven't been preserved. Yeah. So, you know, I've I had a little reading detour. I mentioned the the sort of uh, uh, Jutland book. I also made it through Shattered Sword. I mean, there is this oh, whole fantastic. like genre out there of like minute by minute 
uh, descriptions of these battles. And you have these guys and they're like, you know, they're they're taking sub divers out. And so they know where the ships are. So on the ground and they can count up how many shots landed. And like you have this like incredibly, um, you know, I'm saying autistic in a nice way, uh, sort of studies of uh, of these sorts of um, of these you know particular particular battles. I'm curious, you know, because this is not the the tack that you've taken in your in your um, uh, exploration of naval history. Like, what do you think you can and can't learn from that sort of type and genre of scholarship? Well, I think some of that is really is really important. Uh, I I do enjoy reading some of the things like that. That I mean, it, it, depending on how you structure it, like Shattered Sword, I think is a great example. It is very much. Uh, I'll call it like nuts and bolts, uh, minute by minute. Uh, but um, Partial and Tully, who wrote that book, do a good job at making that narrative pull you along, or at least me. I mean, it's not for everybody, but but I think it is. Uh, it 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 flows well, and where that I think that's really important is you know some of these things do you know turn on a, a, a nail to um, to to sort of build off of that phrase, right? Like you know, for the one of a nail, the horse didn't do its thing, so. Because the horse didn't go, therefore the messenger didn't didn't get the message to the general in time. Therefore the battle was lost, and therefore the war was lost. So on. there are these sort of like cascading impacts that very small, minute details can have. And one of the things that I think is important when you're when you're looking at this is figuring out how to um, identify those small details that are important. Like you know, the lack of a combat information center is very important. The, the 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 doctrinal milieu that the Navy brings to World War II is important. And how do you explain that, but then relate it to something that is that is that is broader? How do you tell the story of the nail made the battle uh, a defeat? How do you tie those two kinds of things together, and how do you do it in a way that's compelling that people can also see? Oh, this is why this is important. So this has ramifications not just for like this battle. This has ramifications for how we think about how organizations learn, or how we think about leadership, or how we think about how we might um, promote more innovative outcomes. Uh, and so for me, that's what's that's what's important. Tying those things together, I think there's there can be real value, and I admire the people who can do that, like very low level detail and chart it all out. And and you know, there are lots of things that I've read line up to that. Yeah. And I think this is where the rules of the game beats out the shattered sword for me, because I think, mm. you know, both of the books, they're trying to, you know, part of their big theme, because they're so focused on the sort of decision makers of the of the, the people who were in charge of these boats is like, you know, what led them, what sort of cultural institutional um, uh, drivers uh, led them to make their ship go left instead of right in, in whatever decision. And I, I thought that the, um, uh, the rules of the game was just gave an incredibly rich view of what it was like to be someone who got to the point where they ended up, um, uh, uh, you know, being in charge of a, a ship during World War I. And then, you know, Shattered Sword, I think, really falls off when it comes to in its portrayal of the Japanese, where, you know, you, you end up with a lot of this kind of like cultural essentialism, like, oh, the Japanese, like they're just like single minded and like, you know, warriors and they want to like go fight and die or whatever. And, you know, these I, <laughs> I, I think there is you know, it's it's hard when you don't speak Japanese. I'm sure there's they're, they're missing stuff doing this in, uh, um, in a second language. But um, 
Yeah, I I really enjoyed uh, the rules of the game uh, when I read it. You know, years ago, I've got a hardback copy around here somewhere, um, and I thought it was it was very compelling. I, I mean, I read both of them and um, was like, yeah, I want to I want to write these kinds of things. They because they predate my my work. Yeah, and uh, they were both influ influential. Um, I thought Shattered Sword was really illuminating from the Japanese perspective. I, I agree that it, sometimes it can present a, a potential caricature of them, you know, the Japanese decision making and 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 so on. And and one of the things that I think would be really valuable is is could you bring a more nuanced understanding? I I, I don't have the expertise to do it, but but I tend to assume that anyone in these kinds of positions is making the best decision that they feel is available to them at the time. So if you want to explain a decision, you need to sort of try to find a way to position yourself that way. Yeah. Like, you know, okay, so why why does the Japanese war game running up to midway fall out the way that it does? It has a purpose. People are acting with good, you know, from a Japanese military perspective, intentions. Uh, why is it so easy for us using uh, today's frame in a different cultural milieu and and from distance of time to be so critical of it what are we missing that that was part of their decision making at the time and and i think if you can get at that then you can you can draw out some of these things because i mean i've certainly been i've been part of i wouldn't call them uh war games but i've been part of you know corporate decisions that feel like you're entrained into like you know what the outcome's going to be maybe that's not the best decision maybe we're not factoring in everything that we could, but someone's decided we're going a certain way and they're structuring this whole dialogue to make sure we end up there. Uh, and it feels very artificial. Did yeah. some of the Japanese officers participating in that feel the same way? I don't know. I'd be really curious to know. Yeah. I mean, and this is kind of comes back to your, your idea of these heuristics, right? Where like the U S Navy had this like bias towards action. Um, and you know, where did that come from? That came from like decades of of, uh, you know, study in history and the technology at the time where, you know, whatever their teachers were teaching them when they were in, in, in the Naval Academy. And, you know, some of these sorts of things, it's like, um, it, it's less a science than just kind of what's in the air, uh, at the, at the time. And it ends up, uh, end up, you know, potentially having really, really big ramifications. It, like what? What do you what do you default to? I mean, we get entrained in these habits of how we make decisions, and a lot of it is is because we're in the thick of it, right? We're it, we're like a fish in the water. We don't see it; it's just there. Uh, someone from a different vantage point may may see it, but uh, I, I think that's how that uh, sort of aggressiveness came to be. You know, the U.S. Navy officers just were like, "That's how we're, that's where that's how we're going to play things." And I think it goes back even before this period. I think you know because they're looking at you know, John Paul Jones and other heroes like that as examples, it's like, you know, this is, this is what we do. We go out and we sock it up. And and if you look at um, sailors from the twenties and thirties, a time period that I've studied more, I mean, they're infamous for getting in fights. Like, you know, there's a reason Donald Duck is a sailor, you know, Donald Duck sort of like the, the chaotic madman of the Disney universe. Not so much now, but if you look at the old cartoons, you know, he's got a quick temper. He seeks out fights. He's, he doesn't, you know, consume alcohol to any extent that I know, but I mean, he's, he's like this sort of little bruiser and that's what, that was the impression that people had of sailors because, you know, they were aggressive or could be. You know, I mean, it, it's really interesting because there's, there's this sort of tension 
Um, and, you know, coming, coming back to Admiral Nimitz of like, who do you, like, what kind of person do you want to be in charge of these ships? Because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you build the ships because you want them to fight, um, and, you know, push around and, 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 you know, defeat the other, the, the enemies, but like, you don't want them to be reckless and stupid. Um, but then you have this sort of overall overarching, um, theory that you, that you let up very you know mentioned very early that like the 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 sort of in the in the pacific theater uh the sort of eisenhower and nimitz thought that they had to push the issue and um you know there wasn't necessarily time to kind of like really take it slow and be very plotting with all of this and that that was ultimately going to be a a, a superior strategy than than sort of doing doing a lot of these naval activity on the back foot so you know i guess they're they're like what, what what was really interesting for me with sort of Nimitz is how on the one hand he was kind of ruthless with a lot of these people and you know if they didn't perform in one battle they would be back in Hawaii or something um but at the same time he was able to cultivate this um this ethos of like you know learning and understanding and all right I'm just one of the guys I'm going to like sit here and have a beer with you and and you know we're going to have all these after action reports and like yeah, we'll be critical, but like, I want you to succeed. So, um, maybe any sort of thoughts and reflections on like the, the, like, you know, aggressiveness to crazy person ethos, <laughs> you know, if that's like a spectrum or something and like maybe what Nimitz in particular did to try to get people who were, um, both kind of, I don't know, wanted to fight and win, but, um, weren't too insane to, uh, do it in a not, you know, thoughtful and strategic way. Yeah, Nimitz does a very good job at, um, uh, like you say, sort of it, it being ruthless about getting getting people who he doesn't think are fit out. But he doesn't do it in a way that embarrasses them. He doesn't do it in a way that that um, yeah, doesn't prevent them from going on to doing valuable things. You know, and, and maybe one of the best examples of this is uh, Vice Admiral Robert Gormley, who is the initial commander in the South Pacific area. Um, he's the one who initiates the offensive at Guadalcanal, you know, under direction from from Nimitz and other superiors. But in October of 1942, Nimitz becomes convinced that, well, Gormley doesn't have the right kind of disposition. He's not sufficiently aggressive. He's not uh, using his forces the right way. Uh, and he's got this pessimistic attitude. So I'm going to relieve him. Uh, but then Nimitz works to see that Gormley is installed as commander of the 14th Naval District, which includes Hawaii. So Gormley then helps work to establish the logistical infrastructure that uh, provides support for future offensives uh, across the Pacific. And so there's a person who doesn't fit in a particular role, isn't aggressive enough, still valuable to the nation and the Navy. And Nimitz relieves him, but channels him into into an appropriate role. And I think Nimitz was very good at that kind of thing. So I think what he was able to do uh, was was develop trust among others that if if he didn't think that they were going to work out, he wouldn't just cast them aside. He would still find a way for them to do to do valuable things, or at least you know work with the Bureau of Personnel who's responsible for those assignments to help them find a way to do something, to do something valuable. Uh, then there's also, you know, how do we, how do we balance? Like we need to be aggressive, but we shouldn't be overly reckless. Uh, and, and I think there are moments where Nimitz is sort of like straddling that ragged edge. I think Midway is, is a potential example of that. I mean, he is calculated 
about it. Uh, there's a lot of intelligence that suggests that that's where the Japanese will be and it's appropriate to, to have an ambush. He positions the carrier forces in such a way that they could potentially withdraw if um, things don't work out. Um, but still, it's it's a it's a gamble. Uh, and I think that's what he's expecting of people. It's like, okay, yeah, take these, take these gambles, take these risks, but use your expertise to make sure that it's, it's, it's within the bounds of what we think is, what we think is right. Um, Amy Edmondson, when she talks about psychological safety, she, you know, she's a, she's a Harvard professor, uh, talks about how if you're going to create that in a in a, a, an organization you need to be able to draw some boundaries and one of those is you've got to identify kind of like the acceptable mistakes because people are going to mis take mistakes that align with what you want them to be doing and for Nimitz like aggressive mistakes are that way you know so take these aggressive mistakes use your knowledge and expertise but I, I accept that sometimes it's not going to work out then there's the unacceptable mistakes like if you're not going to be aggressive enough or you just do something foolhardy and those are the kinds of mistakes that you need to uh, basically say, this is, this is not acceptable. So there's going to be ramifications for that. So you, you sort of reward and encourage the one, the kind of mistakes that you want to see. And then you uh, admonish or, or chastise for the other. And Edmondson argues that this is how, you know, by drawing that boundary, uh, along with a series of other actions, you can start to create the kind of uh, ethos that you might want to see within an organization and encourage the kind of behavior that is going to allow for the risk-taking. Um, it's an interesting like organizational design question where, you know, maybe in order to just have a few people who are willing to do this with their ship, you need to create John Paul Jones as a hero and have, you know, Popeye the Sailor Man and Donald Duck be your, um, be your sort of avatars because it is like so fundamentally unhuman like when you have two choices of like all right i'm gonna like move my ship this way or move my ship that way and you know one of the two ways means i have a much higher probability of like getting out of here alive um to 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 take um you know to take option number one um you know that sort of and this is you know this is not just this is not just for navies this is for every um you know military organization of like you know getting people convinced that it's okay to have their life in harm's way. But what's interesting, I think, particularly with the Navy, right, is like with generals, particularly once we're, once we're in the 20th century, like the uh, army generals, their lives aren't necessarily on the line all that often. Like you're pretty far back, but, um, you know, in very senior positions in the, in the Navy, right? We just talked about on a number of occasions you had, um, you know, people die because their ship got blown up. Um, and that was just part and parcel of the game, which wasn't necessarily the case for the, you know, Montgomery's and Patton's, uh, um, and, you know, futures and, you know, for World War I, uh, as well of the world where they, they were kind mm -hmm. of the, the sort of personal bravery thing. Um, you know, they could like, you know, talk tough and, you know, drive to the battlefield or whatever, but it wasn't literally their life on the line when they're making the call of whether or not to sail this or that way. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a little bit different, and you you see that. I mean, there are a number of uh, um, high-ranking officers, you know, captains and up, uh, that are that are dying in in various in various circumstances um, in these naval battles in World War Two and uh, in World War One as well, for that extent. I, I think one of the reasons that I really enjoyed the Battle of Jutland book and the and Chattered Sword was, you know, particularly as a civilian, like. The, the sort of life and death consequences of this type of stuff, which we talked about earlier, they don't resonate 
quite as much until um particularly like you know the nail to the to the hammer to like you know all the, the butterfly effect stuff it's like in the in the battle of jutland like they didn't do a good job with you know having fire insulation and like the the shells were in the wrong place and that led to thousands of people dying horrific deaths um because there wasn't this attention to this particular detail and you know the same with the kind of command stuff that we've been talking about in Midway in particular, right? It's like because the the sort of decision-making wasn't entirely on point, all of a sudden these ships that didn't necessarily have to go to the bottom of the sea, um, uh, you know, are now in the bottom of the sea. And, um, you know, just that, like the, having it go from, okay, a million people died fighting on ships in World War II to here are these people on this boat um, and here are the decisions that led to their uh, un untimely demise, I think, you, you know, help kind of underline the the uniqueness of this entire enterprise and these and these organizations, which I think with the passage of time and as, you know, as someone who's not a service member, you, service members, you don't end up really um, feeling in an as visceral way as as you can through um, types of types of history like this. Yeah, they, 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 those, both of those books do a good job, uh, you know, and there are other studies of the battle that, that I think do this pretty well also, uh, of, of framing the consequences. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the explosion of the, the British battle cruisers at Jutland is something that I was always, um, uh, sort of spoken to me in an interesting way. Um, because it's it just feels like i mean it's, it's just so instantaneous almost i mean I know, I know they're involved in a battle they're being shot at and everything else but then the right hit the right spot at the right time and you know all the the cordite catches fire and and the ships appear in a vast cloud of smoke um it, it's just so sudden and uh, so massive i mean those are pretty big ships and they just disappear uh so Trent, let's close on some reading recommendations. Um, what else should people read if they mm. want to understand uh, how military organizations learn or don't? There, there's a, a really good book that I would recommend. Uh, it it complements, I think, what learning war quite nicely. It's a little bit shorter. It's by uh, Mike Hunziger or Michael Hunziger, I think his, his name is on the on the cover. It's called Dying to Learn. It looks at the three major powers fighting on the Western Front in World War One, the Germans, the French, and uh, the British, and talks about um, innovation and learning in those contexts. So I think that's quite um, a good one. Uh, there is, um, oh shoot, Mars, uh, Mars Learning. Um, this is a, a study of um, the uh, development of the Marine Corps, US Marine Corps Small Wars Manual based on experience fighting uh, in the Central America and the Caribbean in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, the Small Wars Manual had a bit of a resurgence with the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, I think Keith Bickle is, is the name of the author, does a very good job at tracing the lineage of that document and how it's created and how the, the US Marine Corps did doctrinal evolution in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, building off of that, Frank Hoffman has done a book called Mars Adapting. Uh, so Mars Learning, Mars Adapting, uh, in which he talks about wartime adaptation in a variety of different contexts. Some of it looks at the U.S. Navy and builds off some of my work. And then there are other, there are other chapters that study other, other moments in history. Uh, but I think that one's pretty good. Uh, for those who are interested in uh, night combat, uh, earlier this year, I co-edited a volume and authored a chapter in it 
uh, about uh, fighting at night in in navies in the early 20th century. Uh, we had a group of uh, international group of authors uh, writing about you know fighting in the in the Russo-Japanese War, fighting in uh, World War One, the evolution of the Royal Navy's approach in the interwar period, and then World War Two. We look at the Royal Canadian Navy, the Italian Navy. Uh, the Imperial Japanese Navy and and also the United States. Um, so those are some off the top of my head. Uh, oh, and also I I think it's it's worth uh, uh, mentioning Craig Simon's recent book on Nimitz Nimitz at War. Uh, it, it is I think a nice compliment to to my book on Nimitz. Um, it's more oriented toward the personal side. You know what was Nimitz like as a as a wartime as a wartime leader. Less about sort of organizational structures and how they uh, were adapted. Uh, but uh, Dr. Simons is is excellent, and it's a it's a really well researched study. So uh, I'd recommend that as well. Uh, last thing, Trent, do you have a favorite really dumb organization that just like never learns? Has anyone written <laughs> a book about that? Uh, not off the top of my head. I can't. I can't. I can't think of one. I mean, we can point to to dumb things. I mean, there are there are, in the management literature. There are a lot of uh, there are example stories that crop up time and again, like Kodak, for example, yeah. you know, because they had well, a, a how potential about this? advantage. Do you want to you tell the, can you tell the, can you tell the, the story briefly? You know, we, we said a lot of nice things about the Navy, um, the, the submarine torpedoes. Um, why was oh, the geez. Navy so dumb on that? Maybe we'll close there. Oh, um, I think probably the, the largest problem there is there's no effective feedback loop. So for those who don't know, eh, um, and, uh, the Navy, in in the 1930s, they develop a new torpedo mechanism. It's going to be magnetic. So rather than striking the hull of a ship, it's going to pass under the hull of a ship. It's going to explode there where uh, for a given size of explosive, it's going to be much more devastating because it'll create an air bubble underneath the ship's hull and uh, ideally crack that hull and, and sink the ship. And so the Navy thinks this is, this is hot stuff. This is super secret. We got to keep it quiet but because we don't want anybody to know we're doing this. Uh, but we think it's going to work. So unfortunately, you can look, you can look at the testing and it's very clear that the testing of this device, um, this magnetic influence exploder is all based on an assumption that it will work. So the testing kind of is designed to prove that it will work because we assume it will work, not to test all the potential ways in which it would fail. And so that's what they go to war with. It's been tested to a limited extent. And now it's new because it's been secret. So submarine uh, crews haven't had a chance to practice with it. Now they're given this new exploders. They install it. They find it doesn't work. The submarine torpedoes run too deep. The exploder is too sensitive or not sensitive enough. Some of them explode, you know, far distance away from their targets. Uh, and the initial feedback from the Bureau of Ordnance, which has developed this, is, oh, yeah, well, it's new and it's secret and it's a very sensitive device. So captains and crews are probably using it wrong. It's not a problem with the exploder. You're, it's a problem with the operator. Now, and, and that is a, a challenge that I think many people, if they've dealt with certain technical departments, will have heard from their own experience. Oh, yeah, it's your error. You're the user. You're doing this wrong. It's, it's not with the machine itself. Um, so it takes, it takes a long time. It takes well into 1943 to work out all the problems with it first with the depth of the torpedoes second with the fact that the magnetic exploder is too sensitive doesn't work right and third there's also a problem with the contact exploder because in early 1943 if i remember right nimitz gives approval to disable the the magnetic exploder we're going to use the contact exploder 
Unfortunately, a contact exploder hasn't kept pace with the increasing size and inertia that results from an impact of the torpedo against the ship's hull. And so if you hit it at the best target angle, more or less 90 degrees, uh, what can happen is that the guides for the firing pin bend. And so the firing pin can't impact um, uh, the, um, the exploding device. Uh, and so the warhead won't go off. And captains report this as well. They have to run experiments at Pearl Harbor. And eventually they figure out a way to strengthen the, the, the firing pins and make it more effective. But as I said, that's like till late 1943. And this is a thing that keeps U.S. submarines from being effective and uh, delays the, the, their ability to destroy Japanese commerce and, and also Japanese combatant ships. It's a real problem. Uh, so here is a great counterexample to what the Navy was doing well. And I think what the Navy was doing well or, or did things well when they had more open feedback loops, more... Uh, a greater ability to actually test theories and assumptions and, and validate that what they were doing was going to work. With the torpedoes, they didn't embrace any of that. Uh, done more or less in secrecy, small group, and they test to prove that it works, not to test how it could potentially fail. And you see the results. Yeah, terrible. Um, yeah, I mean, just like the, the sort of arrogance of the story of these, of, of the, you know, well, whoever the the or bureau of ordnance bureaucrats like telling these submariners who are putting their lives on the line and their lives are you know even more at risk because they're shooting these dud torpedoes that like oh it's your fault because you didn't you know set it up right or whatever it's just really always gr grounded my gear so anyways um if you made it to the end of this podcast you're the real mvp uh trent hone <laughs> thank you so much uh for chatting with me about the history of the navy this is such a treat yeah, this was fun. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed it. All right. Um, oh, did Admiral Nimitz, he, did he have a favorite song? Not that I know of. Okay. He did have, uh, evidently he had a favorite drink. There is a sink pack cocktail that he learned how to make. And the recipe is in Simon's book. So if you're curious about, you know, how to drink like Admiral Nimitz, you know, check that book out. Beautiful. So apparently Nimitz's favorite piece of music was Brahms's Third Symphony.